0: goes well with the message this morning here, for sure. Thank you. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6 this morning. We want to look at verses 11 through 14. Do not let sin reign, is what I've titled the message here. And let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would minister to our hearts as we study together. And uh, Lord, uh, you not only have saved us as believers, you now want us to live out who we are. And I pray as we consider what the Bible has to say and uh, then uh, seek to make application that you would use the word as it goes forth to that end. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You will note on the overhead the theme. Uh, we are in Romans and the theme is the righteousness of God, the gospel of God. And we are in that section in chapter 6 through 8, a sanctification of the believer. Paul very methodically presents the gospel of God and how we are made righteous before God in the book of Romans, and then building on that, how we should then live. After the prologue, there is the general flow of thought in Romans that kind of goes like this. Uh, So note, um, we have a universal sin problem after the prologue. This is the first extended topic that he deals with. And then he follows that up with justification by faith alone in Christ. Well, that established results in solidarity, union, identification with Christ. And then the implications of the believer's solidarity with Christ is that we're dead to sin and we are alive to God. In terms of the believer's union with Christ, Paul begins by emphasizing that the believer needs to know this. We need to know of our solidarity with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. We need to know that in his death, we died with him to sin. We need to know that we now share with him in his resurrection life. Three times in Romans 6, 1 through 10, Paul emphasizes knowing our union with Christ and how this reality impacts our life as a believer. So note uh, Romans 6, 3, or do you not know that as many of us as we're baptized, I don't think there's any water here in this verse, he's talking about spiritual identification. Uh, As many of us as we're baptized into Christ, Not not water here. Water depicts it. But really he's talking about the reality, real baptism. uh, Being baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. We're identified into Christ. We're identified with his death. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That's really what he's driving at. That the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. And then verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. So we need to know of our spiritual union with Christ. Note the emphasis into Christ, verse 3, with him, verse 6, forever Christ is done with sin and death. He has dealt with it once and forever and now lives forever to God. And we now share in this position via our union with him. Which we enter into by faith. But it's not enough to know of our spiritual solidarity, union identification with Christ. We also need to count it to be so, and then present ourselves to God accordingly, which is the emphasis Paul now makes as he carries through his thought in chapter 6, 11 through 14. Now, this discussion regarding being dead to sin and alive to God is deep. And at some points goes beyond what we can fully comprehend. Uh, I appreciate Pastor Stephen Cole, and in fact, we had him come one time as a speaker. But uh, Pastor Stephen Cole uh, wrote, "I will say at the outset that this is not an easy text to grasp. The difficulty of Romans six and seven was the major reason that I held off from preaching through it uh, through Romans for thirty-three years of ministry. Boy, that's holding off for quite a while, right?" Uh, he says, I wish I could say that I've had a breakthrough. Uh, I'm, I've been struggling with what Paul says here for about 45 years now, and I'm still not sure that I get it. <clears throat> Here's the difficulty we are plainly said to be dead to sin, and yet the battle with sin rages. How is that? We know that we are a new creation in Christ, and yet we continue to wrestle with old realities. We know that we are now partakers of the divine nature, and yet we still have the flesh. The reality is that you, in the fullest sense of the word, now have the Holy Spirit in union with a new nature. And yet at the same time, you also have indwelling sin. In this whole mix is the reality of personal responsibility related to the full you. Uh, note uh, what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshy lusts, which war against the soul. There is a spiritual war that rages inside every believer. There is the soul, and there is the spirit. We are alive in our spirit, and our spirit is now wed with God's spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.17. At the same time, fleshy lusts war against the soul, 1 Peter. And here is the deal. The spirit and the soul are so closely interconnected that we really can't define where one leaves off and where the other begins. You know, the Bible speaks to this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It goes deep, deep, deep into those secret recesses that nobody else knows, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. There is a deep, intricacy here being talked about. The soul and the spirit are so interrelated that even theologians argue about what the distinction between them is. Where does the one leave off and the other begin? Paul indicates in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that we are made up of spirit, soul, and body. Well, that would make a man a trichotomy, a three-part being. But some theologians think that man is only a dichotomy, a two-part being, consisting of the non-material part and the, the material part. The point is, these distinctions are so deep and obscure that it's difficult to sort out what is soulish and what is of the Spirit. These are the kinds of things that Romans 6 and 7 are interacting with in terms of being dead to sin and yet wrestling with the reality of sin. This is why Pastor Stephen Cole said what he did. And you know what? I can appreciate his humility. I can appreciate any Bible commentary uh, commentator who says, you know, I don't quite have everything figured out yet. I'm still wrestling with a few things. Suffice it to say that Paul has clearly said Christ has once for all died to sin and that he now lives to God, verse 10. And he has clearly shown in Romans 6, 1 through 10 that believers need to know they are now in union with Christ and that they share in these spiritual realities. Paul now in verses 11 through 14 moves from merely knowing the truth of these spiritual realities to commanding that we as believers make application to our life. Verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, our union with Christ has severed us from the old life of sin and death in Adam and has transitioned us into a whole new life of righteousness, and life in Christ. Faith stands between the two like a door between two rooms. Faith is the transition point where we close the door on one room, Adam's room, and enter into another room, Christ's room. The door has forever been shut on Adam. Our relationship with Adam has been forever closed. We have died to sin, and we are now alive to God. This is a spiritual fact. Paul now exhorts us to act on the facts of the matter. Here in Romans, we have the very first command given to believers. Everything up to this point has been about laying down the facts, the facts of our position of union with Christ on the basis of faith. But now we come to personal responsibility related to sanctification. How we should then live as a result of our union with Christ. Paul says believers are to reckon themselves dead to sin and alive to God. The word reckon is a mathematical or calculating term. It means to count something to be so to consider, to calculate, to regard, to recognize something as reality. It's the very same word used in Romans 4.3 where it is translated as accounted when it says that Abraham's faith was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it is often said that while knowing is a matter of the mind, to reckon is more a matter of the heart. It takes to heart what the mind already knows. Uh, Charles Ryrie makes this statement. This reckon means calculate, that is, by adding up the facts presented in verses 1 through 10 and then acting accordingly. Reckon here in Romans 6.11 is in the present tense. We are to habitually keep on reckoning day by day, moment by moment, as a way of life. You see, reckon is a a faith word. By faith, the believer needs to know the facts and then claim them as his very own. It's not enough just to know the facts. We need to personally appropriate them. We need to own them for ourselves by faith. Faith is taking God at his word. Uh, Again, I point you to Galatians 2.20 where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. The life I'm living, now I'm living by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Romans 6, 2, Paul, as a matter of fact, said that the believer is dead to sin. Now, if this meant we no longer have to deal with indwelling sin then there would be no need for the exhortation in verse 11 to reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. But in truth, sin is still a present reality that we all grapple with. The word reckon requires faith in the face of the reality of persistent sin. Just as in the matter of justification, faith is required. So also in the matter of practical sanctification, Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. However, it is faith that personally appropriates it. We read in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. In like manner, here in Romans 6, 2, we died to sin. But at the same time, Romans 6.11 says, Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. This too is a matter of faith. Reckoning is really an act of faith. It's living by faith, as Paul said in Galatians 2.20. William Newell says, The reckoning does not make the fact, but is commanded in view of the fact. It has pleased God to call for our faith both in connection with salvation and with deliverance. Therefore, if we would obey and please God, let us follow his method. Amen. Uh, Paul in Colossians 2.6 says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, and we did that by faith, so walk in him by faith. You receive him by faith, and you are now to walk by faith. It's all about faith. In Romans 3, Paul spoke of the law of faith. Romans 3.17, just like Abraham, who acted in faith instead of just going by the outward appearances of his reproductively dead body, so we too are to go by the facts of God's word. William Newell again says, appearances or feelings are a wholly different thing from facts. God says you died to sin. Reckon yourself dead. Now, it's important to note that Paul does not tell us to reckon sin dead to us, but rather ourselves as dead to it. The story is told of a ship that sailed into black clouds, and then came the pitch black darkness of night. This went on for days. The captain shared that all they had to go by was the compass. But then he said, we shall sail on by dead reckoning. Sometimes everything around us in terms of appearances, feelings, and experience feels spiritually murky. But as believers, we are called to follow God's word, our spiritual compass, with dead reckoning, and God will see us through. Not only are we to reckon ourselves dead to sin, but also alive to God. Whereas we are to be unresponsive to sin, we are to be lively responsive to God. We are now to live as though we share in Christ's resurrection life, which, of course, we now do. Notice uh, in Romans, we're getting ahead here. Should we go there? Yes. Romans 14, 17 and 18. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Now, we as God's people in the church age are not in the kingdom, not yet. But as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we are to walk worthy of the kingdom. The spiritual realities that will define kingdom living are right now to be on display in our lives. This is what it means to be alive to God. It is living with God as the orientation of our life. Warren Wearsby says, The Lord may ask some of us to die for him, but he asks all of us to live for him. And note that he says, In Christ, in Christ Jesus. Our Lord, in this case, is not in the older manuscripts, but he says all, our Lord all over the place, even up to this point, so okay. But note that, that phrase, In Christ, in Christ Jesus. This reminds us that God now sees us not as we are in and of ourselves, but rather as we now are in Christ. The most common designation for New Testament believers, as used by Paul, is the description of being in Christ. Paul used it a total of 164 times. Now, what's interesting about that is that Paul nowhere directly explains what this expression means. But the sense of it here in Romans 6 is clearly that of being in intimate union with Christ. It is the strong sense of complete solidarity with Christ that the whole surrounding context so strongly brings out. You want to know what in Christ means? Romans 5, Romans 6, solidarity with Christ. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. In light of our spiritual position in Christ, namely that of being dead to sin and alive to God, in light of this reality, Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now, this is another command. Uh, you are in charge. Did you like that? Uh, you might want to think about it. Uh, whether you like it or not, it's true. You're in charge. You are responsible for what you do with sin. Now, sin is no longer your master, it's not in charge. Clearly, this shows that sin can still operate as your master if you allow it to do so. And that is the point. As a believer, you must not allow this. You're in charge. Now, God's sovereignly in charge, but you are responsible. When sin reigns, it has its way with you. I'm talking to believers now. He's talking to us as believers. And sin wants to reign in the context of your mortal body. You know, your mortal body that's breaking down, that's dying. Uh, Sin wants to reign in the context of your mortal body to where you obey its lusts. Lust simply means desires or longings. And it can refer to either good or bad desires. Clearly in view here are sinful desires. And again, this is proof that sin has not yet been eradicated. Our bodies at this point are still mortal. That is, they are subject to sin and death. Our bodies at this point are unredeemed. And in this context, sin looks to have a base of operations. And the lusts are still there. For the Christian, life is a paradox. And I often say we are conflicted people. I'd like to say some are more conflicted than others, but I think we're all equally conflicted. We are dead to sin, and yet we very much feel the pull of sin we are alive with christ and yet we live in a mortal body still subject to sin and death the christian lives between two ages we live in the old age but we're called upon to live as though we're in the new age and as we will see when we finally get to romans 8 we're on our way but we're not there yet but when we get to Romans 8, we will see that the Holy Spirit is mentioned more in Romans chapter 8 than in any other chapter in the Bible. When we get to Romans 8, we will find it is, it is possible to live this out only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, our mortal body is so wired that it is still susceptible to sin. But we are called to be what I like to call holy rebels. I still like the idea of being a rebel, but I want to be a holy one. We are to rebel against sin and not allow it to reign. Instead, grace is now to reign in our lives through righteousness, as Paul said in Romans five twenty one. Now, when sin reigns in our body, we obey its lusts, and it's possible for a believer to do this. The cravings of the flesh cry out for gratification. You know that, well, I better, let's stick with the text here, shall we? (laughs) We feel those longings, but we must not act on them. We must not obey them. But note the flesh desires are very much alive and real. You say, well, I just died to sin. I never have any more trouble with lust. I see that beautiful girl walking without hardly any clothes on. It doesn't even faze me. Yeah, you're a liar. You're you're not normal. You're not in your right mind. Something is wrong here. And you know the thing about the flesh? It never gets any better. You say, well, I'm just spiritually growing. I'm getting... Yeah, but the flesh is still with you. I hate to break it to you. Romans chapter 13. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in reverie, drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Don't give it an opportunity. It's still there. We must always be on guard and make no provision for the flesh lest it suddenly have its way with us. We are always vulnerable. We're not safe till we're home. Now, I'm not talking about eternal security. We have that, but I'm talking about falling into sin. We're always a step away from falling. I never, never, never want to put on an air of holier than thou because I am not. This is why Paul, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Watch out. Sometime back, the news showed a fisherman holding a small shark that he had caught. You know, something you want to bring out for the TV camera to see. It was still alive and squirming in his hand. Suddenly, it turned, lurched, and took a chunk out of his shoulder. That's how sin is. As long as it's still alive in you, you are vulnerable and you must be very careful lest it take advantage of you. Now, again, we note the paradox. As believers, we are in Christ, but we also still have the flesh that is subject to sin's reigning power in our body if we allow it to have free reign. Now, Paul is not arguing that the body is the cause of sin, but rather that it is the organ through which sin manifests itself. And when believers yield to the lusts of the flesh, they thus allow sin to be. To reign, expositors said, the implication here is that sin has been reigning. The believer must do his part by refusing obedience any longer to sin's enticements. The word obey has its root idea of listening or heeding. Uh, many of you know this story. The Steve, Pastor Stephen Cole tells this story, and so I stole it from him. Okay, but uh, some people are really worth stealing from. Uh, take that in the spirit it's intended. But uh, notice what he says. Many of you have seen the hilarious Bob Newhart routine where he is a psychologist. And a woman comes for counsel because she is afraid of being buried alive in a box. Newhart's counsel for her phobia plus several other problems consists of two words. Stop it. He screams at her over and over. Just stop it. She tries to bring up how her mother treated her as a child, but Newhart says, no, we don't go there. Just stop it. He says, in some ways, Paul's command to those who are struggling with life-dominating sins sounds kind of like Bob Newhart's counsel. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its loss. In other words, stop it. Then after telling us to obey God, he gives a blanket promise in 614, for sin shall not be your master. It's pretty clear. Stop sinning and obey God because sin shall not be master over you. Got it? End of quote. And the point is, in Christ, we don't have to sin. You say, I'm not sure I believe it. Believe it. You are dead to sin. You are fully accountable. Sin no longer has ruling power over us. We can indeed just say no to sin. We don't have to obey it. We can just stop it. Verse 13, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Here we have yet another command. We didn't have any commands, all the facts, the facts, the facts about faith in Christ and our position in Christ, our identification with Christ, facts, facts, facts. Now, all of a sudden, commands. We have three successive commands in verses 11 through 13. Verse 11, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. Verse 12, do not allow sin to reign in your body. Verse 13, do not present your members for sin's use, but rather present yourselves to God for his service. Now, to present means to make yourself available, to be at their disposal. To present literally means to stand beside. In the context of Romans 6:13, it has the nuance of a slave standing beside his master, ready to do whatever the master says he wants done. To present is, to an effect, say, "at your service. The word instruments often has a warfare connotation as in the sense of weapons or instruments of war. Paul is saying don't present the members of your body as weapons that can be used by sin for unrighteousness. We should never allow our members to be weaponized in the service of sin and unrighteousness. That is to allow yourself to be used by the dark side Sadly, when Christians walk in sin this way, that's what they're doing. Now, your members and your, uh, your bodily members, uh, when it talks about uh, uh, your members here, it's talking about like your hands and your feet and your tongue, etc. Now, James indicates that the most difficult member to control is what? The tongue. He says the tongue is a fiery world of iniquity. The name devil uh, means slanderer. It's what he does, he specializes in character assassination, and he'd like to use you as an instrument. In the New Testament, the Greek word diabolos is sometimes translated impersonally as false accuser, slander, or malicious gossip. This is the devil's work. It's a specialty of his. And sadly, way too often, we as believers present our tongues to carry out sin's work in this way. Talk about being activated for the enemy. This is it. A pastor shared, years ago, I read about a young man who professed to be a Christian, but he was enslaved to some sin. He had been to many counselors. They spent hours trying to help him analyze his past, teaching various techniques, but nothing had worked. He shared this tale of woe with a campus worker and finally asked, what do you think I should do? The campus worker replied, I think you should stop doing it. The young man was stunned. He said, in all these years, no one told me to stop sinning. He didn't realize that was even an option. Wow! We have a choice in this matter of presentation. Are we going to present ourselves to sin? Are we going to present ourselves to God? There's a definite choice for believers. We're not in bondage to sin. Not anymore. We have a choice here. And we are responsible for the choices that we make. The moment we come to the idea of command or exhortation, we are dealing with the will. There's definitely overlap. But knowing emphasizes the mind. To reckon emphasizes the heart. And to present emphasizes the The will. John MacArthur says, present refers to a decision of the will. Before sin can have power over a believer, it must first pass through his will. In a real sense, sin doesn't happen in and through your members without your approval. You sign off on it, so to speak. It's bad theology to say, I can't help it. I'm addicted to sin. Well, that's not what the Bible says. You were, but you have died. Paul is teaching us, we can help it. We can help it. You say, I don't believe it. That's your problem. (laughs) We can help it. We decide who we're going to present our members to, whether it be sin or God. Stop it. A definite choice is involved. In contrast to presenting ourselves to sin, we are to present ourselves to God as those alive from the dead and our members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, it's interesting here. The Greek language has the word present, present your members, uh, do not present your members uh, to unrighteousness, to sin. Uh, The word present there is in the present tense. The idea is do not keep on doing this. But then, when it says present yourselves to God, present in that phrase is in the aorist tense, which emphasizes fact of action in the sense of deliberate and decisive action. Thomas Constable says, I find it helpful for me to make this conscious presentation of myself to God daily. He kind of breaks it down like this uh, Problem, solution. Problem, the world, the flesh you know, the pride of life, Uh, flee, solution. The flesh is the problem, deny. The devil, resist. He says, I kind of think through this daily. Thomas Constable says this. Paul emphasizes three things in Romans 6, 1 through 13. He emphasizes knowing our position in Christ, then that we need to reckon it to be so, and then finally, we need to present ourselves to God. Very simple three key words in Romans 6 related to sanctification. Know, reckon, and present. It is this package that is key to having victory over sin. You say, that's it? That's it. This is the word of God. Remember, Paul started the chapter by saying, shall we continue in sin? And then he answers this question in verses 2 through 13. His answer is certainly not. And the how is found in no reckon, and present. Well, Paul first shows our position in Christ, and then he exhorts us to live accordingly. We need to know of our identity union in Christ, and then we need to apply it. Really, Christian maturity is learning to live consistently with who we now are in Christ. That's the whole idea. Now, who you are in Christ never changes, but you do grow in your maturity, in relationship to positional reality. A little girl fell out of bed one night, and she cried out. The mother rushed to her bedside, picked her up, put her back in bed. And then the mother asked her, Honey, what is the problem? Why did you fall out of bed? And the little girl answered, I think I stayed too close to where I got in. (laughs) That, my friends, illustrates why so many Christians fall. Once we are in by faith, as seen in Romans 3 through 5, we then need to prog- progress to the know, reckon, and present of Romans 6. This is key to Christian living, to progressive sanctification. By the way, a footnote here. The present of Romans 6.13 prepares the way for a similar emphasis in Romans 12.1 and 2. Uh, And also note the double emphasis here in 6.13 on presenting yourself to God, to God. Present yourselves to God, instruments of righteousness to God. Now, sometimes people say, all you need to do to overcome evil is just resist the devil. is that what the Bible says? Resist the devil, and he shall flee from you. Just resist, resist, resist. Well, that's half the answer. It's half the answer. But you know, it's good to read the whole verse, right? Yeah, it is. James 4, 7, therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The first thing we need to do is to submit to God. And with that in place, we can resist the devil. This combination is key to victory. Having victory over sin begins with presenting ourselves to God. When we wake up in the morning, we should say to God, I'm all yours, at your service. And then we should maintain that perspective throughout the day. If a general gave an order that a regiment of soldiers should present themselves for service, it is expected that they would obediently report for duty. Likewise, believers are to present themselves to God as those risen from the dead and ready to serve in newness of life. We now have resurrection life and power because of our union with Christ. And it is with this fundamental consciousness that we should present ourselves to God to serve his righteous purposes. We are to present ourselves to God as those ready to serve in the power of the resurrection. Uh, By the way, it's not that you make yourself alive by presenting yourself. Rather, since you are in Christ, you already share in his life. His resurrection life. And it's on this basis that you now present yourself. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Here Paul is again stating a fact. For the believer, this is, a, this is spiritual reality. Sin will not have dominion over you because its power has been broken. Here lies the secret to freedom from sin. The word dominion comes from the Greek word kurios, which means Lord or Master. You see, if sin were your master, then you would be its slave. But Paul has emphatically shown that because of our union with Christ, we are no longer slaves of sin, verse 6. We've been freed from sin, verse 7. All the way through here, Paul personifies sin. For the believer, it is. It is seen as a has-been ruler. It's a has-been ruler. Outside of Christ, sin rules. But now in Christ, it has been dethroned. No longer is sin in the position of master over the believer. This is a spiritual fact. And this spiritual position for the believer never changes. You say, well, I'm I'm back under the bondage of sin. No, not really. You put yourself there, but you don't have to be there. Even if you allow sin to reign, which you can, it really has no authority to do so. It is totally inconsistent and inappropriate. Why would you allow a defeated foe to rule over you? You know what that is? It's crazy. I just thought I'd throw a theological term out there for you. It makes no sense. Sin is no longer king. Jesus is now Lord. He now reigns in the believer's life through grace. It's a reign of grace. This union with Christ is a grace union. Sin shall not have dominion over us. And then Paul tells us why. Positionally, sin can never have the upper hand because we're not under law, but under grace. This reality of not being under law, but under grace, has everything to do with our solidarity relationship with Christ. Now being in Christ puts us in relationship with everything about it. I mean, we identify with Christ and really everything about him. In terms of our new relationship with sin, his position is now our position in relationship to the law and sin. Our relationship with him now puts us in a grace position. We're under grace. Grace means unmerited favor. We are now in a favored position of being in union with Christ and all the benefits that go with it. Being under grace is to acknowledge our dependence upon Christ, both for salvation as well as sanctification. We are no longer under a legal system. I know this is news for some sectors in Christianity, but we are no longer under the Mosaic law. We're now under a whole new system a grace system that functions completely differently. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. In John 1:17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, in Christ, the law is fulfilled. All that the law demanded, and it demanded, in terms of the penalty of sin, has been paid. In Christ, a relationship of grace is now established on the basis of faith. And isn't it good to remind ourselves, as we find in Colossians 2, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You see, the law no longer has any claim on us. And look, look at all the claims. Look at all the how many t- violations and, and look at this. But all of its demands have now been fulfilled in Christ. We are now free to serve God on the basis of grace. You see, sin had a partner in the law. Christ works through grace. To try and put Christians back under the law today is not only heretical, but it results in nothing but frustration and defeat. Repeatedly, the New Testament emphasizes that the believer is no longer under the legal system of the Mosaic Law. Now, when a person is under law, they are under the dominion of sin. The law did two things. It magnified sin and it exacerbated it. But it never gave any liberating power over it. That doesn't help a person at all. Rather, it strengthens the case of sin against us. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians when he says, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. John Bunyan, we love this quote, right? He wrote, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. It is grace that breaks the power of sin. You know what the cross was? It's grace. It's all grace. It's a grace story. In the surrounding context here in Romans, we find that it is grace as seen in the person and work of Christ that delivers from the penalty of sin, Romans 5, and grace that delivers from the power of sin, Romans 6. Uh, We sometimes sing a song called, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And it has a line that says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Indeed, it is Christ alone who has defeated sin. And now by grace, we are in union with him and we share in this victory. As believers, we are now in a whole new realm, the realm of grace. In Romans 5.15, Paul spoke of the gift by the grace of Jesus Christ. This is the free gift of eternal life. In Romans 5.17, he said, those who receive this grace will reign in life through Jesus. In Romans 5.20, he said, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. In 5.21, he said, grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace is the realm of union with Christ. That's the key point in this whole surrounding context in Romans 5 and 6. The grace realm the union realm of being united to Christ now governs the life of the believer. Uh, George Zeller put this together. Uh, Joe's in the front row will appreciate that you sat there, because nobody else can see it. But uh, law. he's contrasting law and grace. Law is what man must do. Grace is what God has done. Law, I do something for God. Grace, God does something for me. Law works of the flesh. Grace, the finished work of Christ. Law, man's works versus God's working. Uh, Law, trying and struggling to measure up to God's standards, which sinful man can never do. Grace, God bringing me up to his standards, which God, by his grace, has done in Christ. And I now share uh, uh, in all Christ has done. Law, fosters a spirit of self-righteousness. boasting, Look what I have done. Uh, Grace, fosters genuine humility with all boasting excluded. God gets all the credit. Law, Mount Sinai versus Mount Calvary. Uh, law, bondage, I cannot. Grace, deliverance, God can. He gives what I need. Uh, law, God demands life and love. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Versus grace, God provides life and love. Christ lives in me. I, there's a lot of good contrasts there. Uh, note to here what Paul says in Romans 10, 4, Christ is the end of the law. I love it. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This grace relationship we now have with Christ has affected and changed all the relationships of life. All of them. I mean, you talk about a changed life. All the relationships of life have been changed. 2 Corinthians 5 17, if anyone is in Christ, there's the key, in solidarity with Christ. If you're in Christ, in union with Christ, He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The old things are the old relationships related to the devil, the world, sin, and death. The new things are the new relationships with God, his people, righteousness, and life. Being in Christ, being in union with Christ, changes all the relationships of life. And being in a grace relationship with Christ is an educational reality. You see, you don't get saved by grace and then just kind of coast on. You know what happens? You know what happens when you get saved? Immediately you have a new father. Now, the devil was your father, spiritually speaking. But now you have God as your father. What kind of a father is he? Is he an absent father, kind of AWOL? You know, you know, he is the father, but nobody really has seen him or known or heard of him. or No, 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 no. He's not that kind of a father. No, immediately God in grace, in this new grace relationship, begins to teach you as his child. Paul alludes to this. Not alludes, he states it in in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us, true believers, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And part of the way that God teaches us in the sphere of grace is through are you ready for this? Jeremy's not here, so we have no drum roll. But God teaches us in the sphere of grace, through discipline, discipline. Have you ever thanked God that He spanks you? I mean, just asking, it's really grace. Uh, you just can't continue in sin. God won't allow it. He's a responsible heavenly father. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons, a true child of God. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. God is a loving, responsible father, and he disciplines all of his children without exception. For their good. Why does he specifically do it? Well, he goes on to say in Hebrews, for they indeed, for a few days, chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit. W- what kind of profit? That we may be partakers of his holiness. God disciplines you to build holiness into you and me. God in grace deals with us as with sons and daughters, and that involves discipline, which he does for our good, for the building of holiness into our lives. The school of grace involves the school of discipline. You know, the church at Corinth had all kinds of major problems, all kinds of sin problems. And yet, you know what? There was consistent divine intervention in the form of discipline. Paul deals with this. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. You're weak, sick, and dying. What's the problem? If we would judge ourselves, we deal with our sin, we would not be judged. And he's really talking about discipline because he goes on to say, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord. We're disciplined. That we may not be condemned with the world. Since we're God's children, he's going to deal with us. Well, grace does not give a license to sin, but rather puts one in a position of power over sin. And God expects us to live according to this newfound grace position. And in discipline, he trains us to that end. Well, the first half of Romans 6 has two bookends that deal with the issue of sin and grace. In verse 1, the question is asked whether grace encourages sin. And then in verse 14, the answer is given that, it is that grace means sin shall not have dominion, that is mastery over you. Not only does grace not encourage sin, properly understood, It is the key to mastery over it. Grace is all about what Jesus did for us on the cross. Grace is all about our life-changing relationship with Jesus. It has forever affected our relationship with sin. We need to know this. We need to reckon it so, and we need to apply it by presenting ourselves to God for his service. I don't know if this story is true or not. Some stories are so good, you say, that story is so good, I don't think it's true. But it makes the point, and here's how the story goes. Supposedly a true one, but who knows. A professing Christian was in court before a judge trying to explain why he had broken the law. He said to the judge, quote, Your Honor, as a believer in Christ, I am a new man, and I have a new nature, but I still have the old nature too. And it was the old nature that committed the crime. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the judge replied, okay, since it was the old man that broke the law, I sentence him to 30 days in prison. And since the new man was an accomplice, I give him 30 days as well. Therefore, I sentence you to a total of 60 days in prison. The point made, for us as Christians, there is no excuse for sin. We are now dead to sin and alive to God, and we are called to live accordingly. This is a true story. Queen Victoria, who lived from 1819 to 1901, was queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. She reigned for 63 years, which is known as the Victorian era. Warren Wearsby tells this story about the queen. When she was young, Victoria, the future queen of England, was shielded from that fact so the knowledge of it would not spoil her. When her teacher finally let her discover for herself that she would one day rule as queen, Victoria's response was, quote, then I will be good. Her life from that point was controlled by her future position. She would be the queen, and so she acted as a queen should act. You know, as God's children, we are called to live according to who we are. And grace makes this possible are you a Christian? Then live out who you are. Are you not a Christian? Come to Christ. He alone sets free from the penalty and the power of sin, but you must come to him. The answer is always Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Let's stand and have our closing song.